You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Outland Hatch Covers. Outland makes next-generation hatch covers made from PVC that protect your hatch acrylic from harmful UV damage and help keep the cabin cool. They're also super easy to put on and take off. We've got Outland Hatch Covers on all our hatches and even on all the ports, in the cabin, in the hull. We love them. I, I honestly wouldn't switch back to canvas hatch covers. Oh gosh, no way. Check out outlandhatchcovers.com for more info. Welcome to the Morning Muster. Today's topic is sailing high latitudes, and I have some amazing guests here, and I'm really excited to talk to you all because I've been following your journey a little bit from a distance, and the pictures and the places you're going or have gone is pretty amazing, and um, I have a fascination with ice and just being cold, and so uh, I haven't been quite as far north or south, um, as either of you, but I'm really excited to hear about it and learn from you for when I do take that journey. Um, so I was hoping, let's just start with some introductions. Um, Steve, could you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about where you've been and what you've been up to? Sure. Yeah. My name's, uh, Steve Brown. I've been sailing now for, I don't know how many years, 20 years, I suppose. Um, done about in excess of 85,000 nautical miles i've been fortunate to sail uh, in all the world's oceans and and many of its seas so i've i've had a blessed life really my wife and i did a circumnavigation between 2008 2012 in our previous boat um and then with grandkids coming we needed to be a bit close to home but i uh we decided i was going to buy uh an icebreaker and uh, take it on some sailing and climbing adventures uh in tillman style uh, i i can always consider myself a mountaineer first and a sailor second and uh so the plan was uh as i got older to like tillman did and uh and the great bob shepton is to climb from sea level so that's what i've been doing for the previous well the five years leading up to uh, the COVID situation and um I bought Novara in Camden, Maine in 2014. Novara is a little unusual. She's uh, the first of only three aero rig schooners in the world and um, spent two and a half months getting her ready and then then took her north uh, through the Northwest Passage and around uh, quite a difficult ice year in 2014. There was not many boats got through. I think we were the first to get through uh, Bell- the the only route that opened, which was Bellet Strait, and then Alaska, and then down the uh, the west coast of the Americas, uh, Mexico, Ecuador, Easter Island, down through the Chilean channels, uh, Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego to the Falklands, Falklands to South Georgia, back to the Falklands, Antarctica, back to the Falklands. And then uh, steadily up the east coast of South America, went exploring the the uh, the rivers in Suriname and the Guianas, 
and then quickly through the Caribbean, Haiti, Cuba, and then finished back almost five years to the day back in Camden in Maine in June 2018. And then I brought it back to uh, to the UK, um, the great, great circle route. I went north to uh, St. John's and then across from St. John's to, uh, to Cardiff in South Wales, which is where she is at the moment, uh, waiting for this pandemic to end and we can then uh, head north back to the ice. Thank you. Monique? Uh, my name is Monique and I live aboard uh, West Sail 42 with my partner Drake. I've spent the last several years, jumped to Canada and Greenland, spent time exploring there, and then jumped over to Iceland, where we lived for a winter, which was also an amazing experience. Went on to the Faroe Islands, then down to Scotland, uh, spent a winter in Ireland, then circumnavigated Ireland, went up back to Scotland, and we've since sailed to Svalbard and down the coast of Norway and back. So a lot of uh, a lot of mixtures from the Caribbean all the way up to the Arctic. Awesome. And Drake, you're here with us too. Where are you guys at right now? We are now in uh, Stornoway, Scotland, on the uh, the island of Lewis, which is about sixty miles off the the mainland coast. Um, we uh, have spent the winter here, and uh, we're looking forward to sailing back to Svalbard when the the uh, COVID restrictions are lifted eventually. We really wanted to sail back to Svalbard again this summer. And we had spent all the previous winter preparing, and uh, when spring came, we were we were just ready to go. We had fully provisioned the boat. We were we were actually looking for a weather window to push off from Stornoway to start heading north, and uh, we actually found our weather window and. We're going to take off in just a few days, and that's when the lockdown restrictions happened, and we were told that we wouldn't be able to go anywhere. So we've just been here since. I want to ask you all, um, when I think about sailing the high latitudes, um, and I've been up as far as Newfoundland, which isn't nearly anywhere <laughs> as high as you guys have been, but um, I have to say that once we ha- once we turn our bow north and start heading in that direction, I know I'm going in the right way. I start seeing less and less boats. The landscape is different. It gets colder and colder. You know it's a unique place to be because you look around and day after day, you're the only boat in the anchorage. It's not the Caribbean. It's not the trade winds. It's not the popular places. And so I want to know why. Why do you guys keep, all of you, you know, why do you keep going back? I spent six years in the Caribbean just living at anchor and sailing to all of the islands there and I've also sailed all over the Bahamas. Um, I spent a, a, a couple of seasons in Venezuela, so I've, I've sailed a lot in, in uh, warmer waters and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There are just so many cruising sailboats in the Caribbean and very, very few in, in, uh, in the places far north that we've sailed to. I think there, there are probably some places where maybe we have stayed longer, like particularly in, in Faroe, than maybe any other sailboat has ever stayed before. And, and also in Greenland, we've, we've uh, 
you know, we really love that part of it, that it's, um, you know, so mm -hmm. few have been there. And we really feel like we're, we're explorers. It's extremely challenging. It pushes you in in different ways. Uh, I have not experienced a lot of warm weather sailing, uh, but it's it's so incredibly beautiful and and also so incredibly dangerous at times and it's this very thin knife sometimes that you're you're riding and it's it's the most rewarding place that I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Steve, why do you keep why do you keep heading back? Well, I suppose um my background really is a as a mountaineer and uh you know, I've been fortunate to climb all over the world in the greater ranges, you know, Himalayas and the Tian Shan. So I have a real affinity for the mountains. And even in the mountains, I try to get out of the way, you know. You'd, you'd never find me on Everest, for example, or some of the other big touristy mountains. Um, I tend to go to quiet places, you know, I three expeditions to the Tian Shan. So, so that's where my affinity lies. Trish and I, uh, we cut our teeth with our first boat in the Mediterranean where there's lots and lots of boats. The weather's good. It's very interesting. I mean, tremendous amount of history there, but too many boats and too many people. And then with our second boat, you know, we sailed that around the world, a typical coconut milk run through the Caribbean, spent, uh, spent about a year in the Caribbean, which was probably nine months too long. Uh, the Pacific, which was fantastic, you know, to get out of the way. We had uh, just the two of us, uh, mostly. We had an absolute golden time. Spent more time in the water and under the water than we did uh, did on top of it and uh, met some fantastic people, made great friends. But the plan always was to, uh, you know, to go off to the more remote places. And uh, when I bought Novara, I had a bit of a bucket list. It included the Northwest Passage, uh, Alaska, South Georgia and Antarctica and the Chilean channels. So it was about joining the dots. And so a complete circumnavigation of the Americas was the only way to do it. And even in the Northwest Passage, we didn't go up the Greenland side. I went up uh, the west side of Davis Strait and explored Baffin Island. And so, you know, we, we poked our way into the fjords and uh, we found, you know, anchorages that were hardly tenable and but uh, we had a great time and we just took our time. We spent a long, long time there. The ice was very slow to recede in 2014. Mm -hmm. So that gave us time. And then, you know, the rest is history, really. Um, and so really, that's that's my affinity. And that's why, mm -hmm. you know, the plan is to go back. I, I've never been to Greenland. So, you know, the plan is to go and spend a few years there and spend a few years in Iceland. I've got a couple of... Uh, plans in and around Svalbard and then um with climate well, change maybe Drake and Monique will have some tips for you <laughs> yeah absolutely I was just thinking absolutely. we're going to have to exchange notes you can tell us about the Northwest Passage and we'll give you more on Svalbard and Greenland <laughs> sure yeah and yeah. I'll be the stowaway <laughs> um Monique, it sounds like you were kind of thrust into cold weather sailing, but Drake and Steve, it sounds like you had a lot of warm weather sailing before you went you went north or south. And so um, I, I wonder, how do you prepare for sailing the high latitudes? How do you prepare that's different from sailing, you know, in the more popular places like the Bahamas or the Caribbean? What's, what's different about your preparations? 
I think um, well, there's, there's two aspects of the preparation. There's the boat and there's the crew. And, um, you know, it's a learning curve. So, you know, the, all the time spent in the med and, and the time spent doing the circumnavigation, you know, that, that was working our way up the learning curve, getting to know what works, what doesn't work, getting confidence in your own ability, your own seamanship. But when you go to high latitudes and serious high latitudes, when you go out of the way, uh, the boat has got to be right. You've got to know your boat inside out. And I, I work on the basis that um, everything on the boat is, is important. It has a place. And, you know, if something goes wrong, you've got to ask yourself, uh, what are you going to do about it? So if something breaks, first of all, can you fix it? If not, can you live without it? If not, you need a spare. And so, you know, the preparation of the boat, the spares, the self-reliance is absolutely the key. Because there's, there's not much help up there, not many people or resources. No, not really. I mean, the Northwest Passage, I mean, obviously there's, there's the Inuit settlements and you can get things done there and, and Greenland is the same. Um, but you go out of the way. I mean, South Georgia is probably uh, the most remote place I've been and it's the toughest I've been by a long way. I, I think I've done four crossings of the Drake now and it's nothing compared with the journey back from South Georgia to the Falklands. And, and you know, so it, it's self-reliance. Uh, in my case, uh, because they've, they've been mainly uh, sailing and climbing expeditions. Uh, I've had other people on the boat, uh, you know, friends mainly, uh, mountaineer friends in the main. You know, some of them have sailed and some of them not. I, I took a guy down to Antarctica and he he asked where we were going to anchor overnight crossing the Drake. So that was, <laughs> it, he really didn't understand what was entailed. <laughs> It, that was really a baptism of fire. And, and now you're saying we, you need to prepare the crew ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I had spoken to him, but he, I don't think he was taking it yeah. all in, you know. I think that's so incredibly important, the knowing your boat inside and out and being able to work on your boat. And having worked on your boat for many years, I know... Drake especially is is just an ombudsman you know there's very little aboard Paragon that we can't fix ourselves uh, it comes down to you know maybe some engine work but even that is is something that that we can do and have had to do in in some very remote places so if if you're not able to fix your boat or as steve said do without certain certain items yeah i, I think it's it's uh it's really important to understand that when you're in these very remote locations you can't get spares um so you have to bring spare parts to fix everything because everything will break and if you really need it you need to be able to repair it or replace it with what you have on board you need to you need to sometimes just figure out how to how to jury rig something with what you have aboard and it can be a real challenge being creative um, definitely yeah being creative because unlike mm -hmm. in in places where there are just thousands of cruising sailboats and you can get a spare from from another boat or you can get uh you know technical assistance from from go somebody local go to the um, local chandlery <laughs> yeah uh you know out in mm -hmm. svalbard there are no chandleries and there are no boats with spares and in uh in svalbard one of our 
uh, tethers for our harness uh, harnesses broke. There was a little spring on a D shackle that attaches to your tether, and the spring had broken, and I didn't have a spare of of that spring, so the D shackle wasn't like it couldn't lock itself. And <clears throat> I must have. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I must have gone to 15 different places uh, in the capital of Longyearbyen trying to find a spare uh, spring. I was I was so lucky. Finally, like the 15th place was uh, uh, was actually an auto dealership. You know, the most northern one in the world and. Mm -hmm. Um, a whole bunch of people told, in town had told me, you know, if you're going to find a spring, the only person that could possibly maybe have one is the guy in the car dealership. And uh, I remember walking in there and saying, everybody in town tells me you're my last hope. <laughs> and, uh, and he did. He had a spring that, uh, that worked in the Isn't in that the funny? You'd never think one of those things would break. I know exactly the, the D-ring, the spring-loaded shackle that you're talking about. I think I probably have the same one on our tethers, and it never crossed my mind that it, that would break. I have, yeah. um, I, I've written a few articles for the yachting press over the years but i've got one on the stocks called the mother of invention because necessity <laughs> is most definitely the mother of invention i've fixed i made a, a part for a, a carburetor on uh, an outboard engine out of a, a plastic cutting board mm -hmm. i made a, an expansion tank for the engine out of a, a five liter petrol can uh, chopped up the table leg for the saloon table to make uh, to make a ram at one stage. So our saloon table is slightly lower than it used to be now because I cut a piece out of it. You know, it, it, there's some simple things you can do uh, to put on that you'd be amazed uh, what they can be used for over time. But but it's not something you can't mm -hmm. go you can't go to a book. There is a list. You know, it's part of the learning curve, really. Yeah, I can remember one time we had a. A bent connect. I had a bent connecting rod on my boat when I was sailing solo on um, Daphne, and um, and this was my first engine fix. And the connecting rod's like at the heart of the engine, so I had a lot to learn suddenly because I wanted to do it myself. And um, to to put the rings on the connecting rod, you need a special tool to compress them to make it slide in this perfectly tight fitting spot. And we didn't have that special tool, and. Um, I it was probably too expensive or I couldn't get to it or something like that. And so uh, I, I made one out of a soda can and uh, some hose clamps. And I remember learning about this trick and was told that it had to be a Mountain Dew can. And I don't drink Mountain Dew, but for that mission, I did drink a Mountain Dew. <laughs> but I, I was also thinking about your this idea of self-reliance. And every sailor says you need, need self-reliance because you could have a... A failure of some sort at any time but I think it's just heightened to the extremes when you go to the extremes because like you're talking about you have less resources and it was it reminded me of when Ben and I were sailing his Bristol Channel Cutter in Newfoundland and our engine failed now we certainly had resources there was a town nearby and we stopped there and uh, to get parts or to get help and we met this mechanic 
And he told us that he was the first person to ever tow an iceberg. And what he, his job, he would literally lasso these icebergs with a giant cable and tow them away from something that they were going to crash into that would be problematic. It just makes me think of the ice and you're surrounded by ice and it makes me think of the first iceberg that I saw and the crackling noise it sounded when I rode over to it it sounded like rice krispies and then I saw a piece of the Peterman ice island from Greenland it was the largest iceberg largest Greenland iceberg on record and then the following year there was another large large one it was pretty shocking for climate scientists but just to see it and the waterfalls pouring off of it and the animals and the birds that were kind of hitchhiking along for the ride and just the the colors the purples and blues so it was so beautiful and I want to talk to you guys for a moment about ice because Steve you said you're surrounded by ice I'm obsessed with ice I guess just tell me about the ice what did you learn and what was your the the most amazing thing that you saw well in in the it was a baptism of fire I'd been down to Antarctica um in 2007 uh on another sailing and climbing expedition and so I, uh, I wasn't skipper on that boat. So I, I dad, uh, that, that was my learning curve for the ice and talking to the skipper and talking to the other commercial skippers down there, people like Skip Novak, et cetera, uh, Jerome Ponce. And uh, I learned a great deal from them um, about the way ice behaves and the different ice, because it's not all, it's not just icebergs, you know, stuff that comes... Uh, of glaciers, it's it's first year ice, fast ice, multi year ice, and how it behaves. And you know, everybody everybody thought really that it was all due to the currents, but um, the the weather plays a huge part, and the wind plays a huge part, and icebergs particularly get blown all over the place. But also, you know, first year ice and multi year ice, uh, sea ice gets blown around. And so that that taught me quite a lot. And as we worked our way up the coast of Baffin Island, and we we were entering places, entering fjords that literally either had just opened or were still partly blocked. And and you know, Novara is ice strengthened. She was uh, built specifically for high latitude cruising. You know, we got forty millimeters of uh, aluminium in the bow, and I learned that we could break ice flows to to break a passage through. Uh, by riding up on them, and if they, as long as they weren't too big, we could break them in too. So I, I tell you just one story. We were in uh, Cape Hooper on uh, the North Anchorage on Cape Hooper, and it's it's on the south end of Home Bay. Home Bay is about forty miles by twenty, forty mile north to south, twenty miles east to west, and it was completely blocked with with ice, uh, fast ice, first year ice. That was actually held in place by some really big icebergs, some of which were part of that Peterman berg that broke off. And um, but there was an ice tongue uh, coming out from Cape Dyer that was stopping our passage up to Clyde River to the Inuit settlement at Clyde River. And so we we were watching the weather. I, I knew the weather was going to change, and um, that the ice tongue would break off was my anticipation. So we actually set out uh, from the North Anchorage on uh, Cape Hooper. And uh, as we did, we'd been going about 20 minutes and we came to the first ribbon of ice that was floating past northwest uh, to southeast. And we easily got through that. And the second ribbon of ice was a bit thicker. And the third ribbon now had some fairly big flows in it. By the time we got to the fourth ribbon, 
it was I was beginning to realize that uh, unless we turned back, we was going to be in serious trouble. And so we did turn back and the smaller ribbons that were behind us were now very big ribbons and we were breaking flows to get back. We went back to the Anchorage at Cape Hooper, uh, sat overnight for 18 hours. And when we came out the following day, there wasn't even an ice cube in the water. 40 miles by 20 miles had broken up mm-hmm. in the wind and the, the rough seas, had broken up and been blown out into Davis Strait and was heading south for the summer. It was quite extraordinary. And that experience stood me in good stead for the rest of our Northwest Passage trip because we had a lot of ice mm-hmm. and, uh, and our route, you know, we had we were in uh, twice in seven tenths ice and managed to get ourselves out of it. And uh, the far end of the Bellet Strait was probably, was certainly in excess of four tenths ice, but we managed to break our way through and into Peel, Peel Sound and make our way south to Joe Haven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is amazing how quickly the weather can, can affect the ice around you. I know that we tend to be a little, um, little more careful about the places that we're going into especially in regards to wind direction because Paragon is a fiberglass boat and we're very lucky because she was built in 1976 at this time when when these boats were just very overbuilt and so she is a, a solid tank of a boat but still fiberglass and so we really do try to avoid uh, more than like three like three tenths <laughs> of ice is is kind of our our limit on what we try to get into but there were times when we would go into an anchorage and it would be completely clear of any ice whatsoever and we would go to sleep at anchor and it was just lovely and we would wake up in the middle of the night with this thumping and banging on the side of the hole and uh and jump out and discover that we were completely surrounded by ice because the wind had shifted and so Mm -hmm. pushing things off and Mm -hmm. and uh couple of hours go by the wind shifts again and again it's it's very clear so mm-hmm. yeah or we would uh, <clears throat> um be at anchor in a in a uh, and have no ice around the boat at all or in the in the anchorage at all and uh in Svalbard and we went for a long all-day hike uh on land and then when we came back the whole harbor was completely full of ice because the wind had changed and we had difficulty getting back to our boat at anchor uh, with the dinghy because we had to push so much ice out of the way just to get the dinghy back to uh, the boat at anchor. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really kind of envious of, of uh, strong steel hull sailboats and uh, their ability to actually hit ice and break it uh, we we could never do that um not intentionally at least we we, we don't want our fiberglass hull to come into contact with ice you know in any scenario so we're always uh really careful we've got a person on the bow uh you know looking for ice ahead when we're underway occasionally and in passages in greenland where it was possible drake would actually climb up to the the spreaders and and be looking out from there to see what was ahead oh my goodness 
one really important thing that we learned uh, in Greenland uh, was that we were we were not adequately prepared because we did not bring really long sticks to push ice away from the boat. Um, you know, we had boat poles, but they're totally not inadequate adequate for for pushing away ice. You need like a a strong two by four that's or, or like a, a very lightweight. What we have now are <laughs> remarkably uh, some very lightweight copper oh. piping <laughs> that we that we found at a at a like a junkyard in Svalbard but uh yeah when mm-hmm. when we were first there we were there would be big pieces of ice that were coming up to the boat and we really needed to push them away mm. and this is a, I guess this is part of the the learning curve because we'd be pushing it and uh and our boat poles would either start to bend or snap and, and you or they can weren't, weren't long enough they weren't long or enough. strong enough mm-hmm. yeah uh so I think that's that's one of the things that we really wish we had known before we went up it, it's such a simple thing and it's quite easy to to bring it on the boat but but we didn't have it maybe mm-hmm. like how, how long or we have two uh ice poles at the moment and i think they're probably uh like five six meters long oh long, gosh yeah really strong yeah. probably pretty cumbersome to work with too probably a skill you've learned a technique <laughs> <laughs> yeah the original ones that we had were actually given to us by a swedish couple and they were just two by fours that were about 18 feet long with metal spikes in the end and they they worked but they were quite challenging just because they're they're heavy and and it's hard yeah. to kind of wield them um, yeah the pipes that we have now are actually quite light so it makes it much easier and and they don't break also so that's great mm. so i want it since we're talking about ice now we have to talk about the cold because i mean you all are probably just drenched in cold day after day. And you don't have to sail even to the high latitudes or very far north to experience cold sailing. Here in Maine, I've been on a, a training for a program. I was in an open boat, no dodger, no cabin. And I would wake up after sleeping under the stars. I'd wake up and there'd be frost on my sleeping bag and frost on the deck. And then I'd do my 5.30 a.m. morning dip um, and then my hair would freeze. And then when ben, when ben and I were sailing up in Newfoundland, I remember standing watch through the night for hours and hours being so cold. You know, I'd have my foul weather gear on, but the fog was so thick that maybe I'd still get very wet. And I'd have to put on winter ski gloves and mittens and the puffy jackets and all of that. And even still, just sometimes holding the tension of the cold, my back would get sore. I mean, we didn't have any sort of cockpit enclosure. And we had a Dodger, but in fact, it was only half finished at the time because I was making it. So um, we're pretty exposed. And um, I think it takes a certain personality type to enjoy the cold and want to be in that kind of environment. And so I wanted to ask you guys if you had any tricks or tips or just like how do you maintain when when it's a grind to keep going when it's so cold yeah on on our boat we have a a hydronic heater burn it burns diesel and uses a little bit of electricity to run uh to heat up water and send it through hoses that go throughout the boat and that hose has little radiators spliced into it and uh what was really fantastic about that was 
when we were offshore for many, many, many days in lots of cold weather offshore, that just made such a huge difference being able to heat the cabin underway. So, you know, when you came off watch and you came back down into the cabin, it was wonderfully warm. And that just, just made mm -hmm. all the difference in the world. With our hydronic heater, it, um, it can actually work off of burning diesel itself, or it can be um, spliced into our propulsion diesel engine and use the waste heat from that. So, you know, whenever we were running our engine, we had a, a wonderfully heated cabin underway. That was just so fantastic. And then, of course, baking cookies helps, right? And I remember a time years ago when I was in training for a program that I was going to run that was in the Pacific Northwest. And um, we did this capsize drill, this emergency scenario drill, and I was in an immersion suit, you know, it's like a sleeping bag with arms and legs, fully, you know, covered. It's not a wet, not a dry suit, though. The water can get in. But I was in an immersion suit in the water for a period of time. And I had a reaction to the cold, to the cold water, to the point where I couldn't, wasn't 100% on my game. And I remember after that, my mentor said to me that I needed cold water training to increase my tolerance for cold water. And so that's when I started doing regular dips in cold water and trying to find colder water and just um, kind of getting a little bit obsessed with it. So I want to know if you guys have done a polar bear dip. I have. Uh, years ago when I was living in Vancouver, and it's a, a whole thing at the start of the new year. And it mm -hmm. it is... It is brisk, <laughs> to say <laughs> to say the least. I also would do a lot of hiking when I lived in Colorado, and it, it's a high desert there. And a lot of times we would come to the tops of these mountains and just be exhausted and triumphant, and we'd start to go down. And we started this kind of thing where we would jump into these these lakes that were basically just melted snow. Uh, so got a, a little bit of a taste for it. I'm not sure that I would do it every, <laughs> every day. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's amazing the shock to your system the first time you do it, especially mm -hmm. when you're, you're not, you're not expecting uh, the pain and the, the cold and the, the numbness and the, the adrenaline and the, the everything in your body's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> mm -hmm. There's a, mm -hmm. a woman that we met in the Faroe Islands, uh, I think, how old? She's 80. Like 80 now. years old. And for decades, every single day, she comes out of her house and she jumps in the ocean. That's awesome. <laughs> so I will say that swimming, swimming in cold water, you definitely have to set up like some safety parameters because if you're in cold water for any amount of time, you know, your what's natural, your body's response is to shunt all the blood to your core, to the vital organs to keep them safe. And so you don't have very much, you don't have as much blood th flow through the muscles, through the body and your legs and your arms. And so when, when, when they say your legs turn to jelly, they literally do. I remember doing a training in the water and come, crawling back out onto the dock, climbing up the ladder and trying to walk on the dock and m like my legs giving out underneath me because I had been in the water, the cold water long enough. There's no ice in this water that I was swimming in. It was just cold water, um, very cold water, but not ice. Um, 
Steve, did you do any swimming on your journeys? <laughs> I crazy thing to do. In my younger days in the mountains, um, I, you know, I, I'd take the occasional dip in, in um, you know, the rock pools coming down from the snow melt. But uh, I try to avoid uh, going in cold water in the ocean. Uh, I, I love going in the water, you know, in the Pacific and the Caribbean. But even, uh, you know, we've gone through the Pacific in very warm, very warm water in Tonga, Fiji, etc. And by the time we got to Australia in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, 22 degrees felt freezing. So, um no, I, I really don't. I had some of the guys on the boat uh, down in Antarctica. They decided they were going to take a dip. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not too sure my aging heart would actually stand the thermal shock anymore. <laughs> I, I'd i like to stay on the boat if I possibly can. Yes, definitely. What kind of preparations do you make to avoid falling in? Well, obviously, sort of crew training, you know, uh, life jackets and tethers, uh on the boat we have uh, uh we actually have stainless steel wire jack stays uh, running the full length of the boat mm-hmm. and you know it's you know with the experienced guys it's it's quite easy but you know with guys that are just mountaineers and never been on the boat and and then in high latitudes it's really about education making them understand and not putting them in harm's way you know mm-hmm. as a skipper you've got to lead from the front so uh when anything you know, slightly more dangerous needs doing. I, I tend to be the one that does it, or me and you know, mm-hmm. if if I've got another experienced guy, guy or gal on the boat with me, then we go and do it. But what I would say, going back to to the point about you know cold weather and keeping warm, I, I think I consider I served my apprenticeship in the mountains, in the cold, sleeping in snow holes, snow scoops, tents on top of mountains, etc. So um, particularly with Navarra, I've made sure that it's comfortable. You know, it's a pilot house. We've got what is, uh, to all intents and purposes, uh, a diesel-fired home central eating system. We've got six radiators on the boat. Uh, I try to make sure that uh, everybody um, has got good clothing and we make sure that we time the length of watches uh, to the conditions you know, so we don't pe- we don't put people out in the cold for too long. We make sure there's hot drinks and hot food, etc. Mm-hmm. Any any food will be cold and wet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I think I made the point just before the sound went, and and that is, you've got to look after yourself, and you've got to start looking after yourself before you leave home. You've got to be in the right condition physically. You've got to pre- be prepared mentally. You've got to know what you're going to do in certain situations. And then you've got to make sure you look after yourself while you're in those environments. You know, you've got to sleep well, you've got to eat well, you've got to drink enough if the weather's warm, dehydration, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, some of that common sense tends to get lost in uh, in the heat of battle, really. And so preparation, you know, looking after yourself and looking after others. Yeah, I totally agree mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with that, and and I think you cannot underestimate the power of a satisfying, hot, delicious meal when it's cold. Uh, I know that when we're underway, Drake is is meticulous about planning out hot food, 
what we're going to eat, when we're going to eat it, and, and coming off of a watch where your fingers are just so cold and having someone hand you a mug of hot tea and, you know, some homemade lasagna that's been cooking down below or, or whatever. It just, it Oh raised, my gosh, you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it raises your spirits. Mm -hmm. It, it kind of revitalizes you. It mm -hmm. warms you up. Uh, and it makes you really ready for that next watch. I know exactly what you're talking about. Ben is always baking cookies when he's just about ready to switch watch with me so that we have warm, fresh cookies coming off watch. And um, it definitely warms your body eating hot food or drinking hot drinks, but also just the calories because your body's starting to burn those calories. It's like a little furnace in you. And, and then also, just to reiterate, Steve, what you're saying about being prepared and having the right clothing and, this, and um, trying to stay on the boat – by no means should anybody be swimming unless there's a lot of preparation, you know, like certainly at anchor with some support, maybe a float in the water, various other things like that. Very thought out, no currents, you know, when there's no current going on. But um, but I do uh, love the polar bear dip and do recommend people give it a try in a, in a safe moment. Um, I, I want to just kind of wrap up and end with just a few more questions and one in particular because – you guys have talked about some beautiful places you've been and some really thrilling experiences you've had. And I think going to those extreme places is thrilling and you can learn a lot about yourself, certainly a lot about sailing. But just being tested like that, I think, is an, is an amazing opportunity. And so um, what advice do you have for people, I guess, for high latitude hopefuls, people wanting to do this or planning to do this? What, what is like one major piece of advice you'd give them? Well, I, I come back to it again. It's it's experience. You know, you can you can jump in at the deep end, not knowing, you know, not doing the research, not doing the reading, not being prepared, not having the right equipment on the boat, not being prepared yourself. But if you do that, you know, I mean, clearly, there's one thing putting yourself at risk. But if there's other people on the boat, and particularly if you're a skipper, you know, you've got a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that. Uh, you know whether you want assistance or not if you get into trouble there are you know the authorities will naturally want to try and send people to rescue you so then you're putting other people at risk mm -hmm. so you know i can't overstate the importance of experience and preparation and you know get up the learning curve as fast as you can but don't underestimate the importance of the learning curve and is there a way steve just to add on to that is there a way that someone could ease in to sailing these high extreme latitudes? Is there an in-between step? You know, if you've got, I won't say deep pockets, but if, you know, if you can afford it, then there's any one of a number of commercial operations from the top end stuff, you know, the, right the way down to sort of small scale operations uh, working in both the Arctic and in Antarctica. And, uh, and that's a great way of doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was primarily a climbing expedition, but it was a sailing climbing expedition. And I knew, uh, you know, we were going quite far south on the Antarctic Peninsula. And uh, I knew it would give me the opportunity to be working in ice. And, you know, you ask the questions, you're talking, you become friends with the skipper and, and mate. And, uh, you know, so I, I spent something like four weeks down there um, mm -hmm. in the ice on, on uh, the peninsula itself climbing. And I learned a great deal. 
And then you look at other people around, you know, that there's a lot of great role models that you can look to. You know, my old friend Bob Shepton, for example, 10 seasons, 10 expeditions uh, to the Arctic, you know, circumnavigated, been down to Antarctica, etc. You can ask questions. Uh, before I went through the Northwest Passage, I made a point of meeting up with um, David Scott Cowper, who at that time, had, I think, had done six of the seven routes through the Northwest Passage. He's now, he's now done all seven. Um, and went to ask him, and he gave me a piece of advice, uh, of advice about anchoring, you know, and that was to use, if you thought ice was going to be blown in onto your anchor chain, then to use uh, an anchor with a bit of chain and anchor rope so that you could cut it free. And so it's little things, you know, if you take the time to do the research, put in the hard yards, uh, you can avoid an awful lot of trouble. Having said that, we got knocked down. Uh, we ran through um, the South Shetland Islands and English Strait and then ran down through the Bransfield Strait in an absolute blizzard, 45 knots and ice building up on the boat, a lot of snow. Uh, we got into um, Deception Island, uh, 100 knot gust, knocked us on our side, uh, wrapped a rope around the prop and put us up on the beach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we had to get out of that. So that there are, these are extreme conditions. They're extreme environments. The, the more you can learn about it in advance, the better. Mm-hmm. But you've got to have the, you know, the strength, the inner strength to, to get your out, yourself out of those situations. It reminds me, you know, as you're talking about this and the programs that you mentioned, it reminds me of one of my, our former students that you, I think you actually have met. His name is Barry, and he sailed in the, in the Antarctic on his boat a couple of times, I believe. He's, we've been in touch with him. He's had some amazing adventures, but um, I'd say he his training course was a more self-expedition. Now we don't go to the ice yet. We we may do one. Um, but uh, yeah, he took one of our courses. So that's, I guess, a type of opportunity, a type of training opportunity. Yeah, what, what's his last name? Kennedy? Yes. Yeah, I that's know. That's very, that. very great person. We have a funny story about him. We had a situation where something got caught on the prop and um, Barry rips his shirt off and jumps in the water to dive down and check it out. And this was this is not a requirement on our courses. Um, but he but he said, I have to get as much out of this for, for my payment as possible. So he jumped in to all of our surprise, actually. <laughs> he's, he's just bought himself a Pessoa uh, yeah. new boat. It's just been delivered, I think. He had it shipped. Mm-hmm. He's, he's preparing to go back to the ice again. Yep, I think I think like anybody, once you see that ice, you become obsessed with it, and you got to keep going back. Um, Monique, you were going to say something. You might maybe some advice for a hopeful. Or I would say if like that? if sailing to higher and lower latitudes is something that you wanted to do, that I would recommend reaching out to every single person that you possibly can. Um, if you, if you follow someone, if you read, you know, someone's blog or their, their, um, their articles, there are a lot of people out there. I know when we first started this, we would 
basically just pick everyone's brains. Oh my God, you went here, you went to Greenland, you went to Svalbard, you went to Northern Canada. Like, what did you do? Where did you go? How did you do it? Uh, we learned about so much that really wasn't in uh, cruising guides or which I have to say uh, <laughs> a lot of places, the cruising gar uh, guides are, pardon me, the cruising guides are pretty paltry. Uh, oftentimes the the charts are fairly paltry. There are whole sections of places that we sailed in and around where the chart just said uncharted. <laughs> um, so, mm -hmm. so every time we met someone, we asked them if they would come over and, you know, have a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and, and sit down and tell us their experiences. Yeah, with and, a map of the cruising ground on the table so yeah. that we could write on with a pencil. We would ask yeah. them if they, you know, where they had been and, and what their experience had been. And it was invaluable to our time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I'd agree completely. I, uh, before I went to Antarctica, uh, 2018 and also South Georgia for that matter. Um, you know, I managed to get a copy of Skip Novak's Mud Notes. You know, so I had these hand drawings of all the anchorages he'd found uh, with the original Pelagic, uh, different places he'd been to. And, and like you, I'm I'm a sponge. You know, uh, if I'm interested in something, I just soak it all up, um, mm -hmm. and and I seem able to retain it, which is a real well. I used to be. It's disappearing a bit now, but um, the ability to, to to learn from other people is is a tremendous thing, and you know you, you talk about uh, blanks on the map really or on the chart. I mean that's the reason you go. You know, um, our time on in in Baffin Island was really to go to places where there there wasn't the charts were two and a half miles off in places. There was no anchorages, didn't show any shallows. So you know we went for. A, we went looking for alluvial runoffs, you know, draped the anchor on one side and the chain over it and stayed on the other. And I mean, that's what it's about. It's about the exploration. It's about the adventure. You know, ice is pretty, but uh, you need an adventurous spirit to go and look at it in the first place. So I just have one more question. I, you know, a lot of people go sailing because the water's so beautiful. They want to put on their bathing suit, lounge in the sun drink some cocktails, jump in, snorkel. There's such an amazing underwater, colorful fish and corals and things to see. And you don't really get to do that when you're sailing in, in the cold, cold water because, well, it's just too cold. And so do you ever miss it? Is it worth it to not be able to go swimming and snorkeling? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, go and <laughs> That was easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Yeah, you know, I've the the whole reason that you know I'm living on a boat is because I want to explore the world and just you know I want to spend the rest of my life always sailing to new places and uh, meeting you know, new people, meeting new people from cultures that I'm I'm not familiar with and learning about you know history and culture from the the people that live there and the, the most important thing for me. Uh, sailing to Greenland was just meeting the people and being able to learn about their, you know, their their history, the history and culture. And uh, I think the the big highlights for me was when I was able to actually interview them for our YouTube channel. That was just 
I think that's what's, you know, most meaningful to me, just meeting the people from these places. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's the thing that, that makes me want to go there the most. Mm -hmm. I think um, the circumnavigation and particularly uh, in the Pacific, you know, the wildlife below the waves was astonishing. Um, you know, we swam with whales and dolphins and giant mantas and more sharks than you can stake, shake a stick at, you know, and dive in. And, but I was, I was actually surprised. I actually wrote an article called 33,000 Miles of Wildlife. I was surprised by the amount of wildlife on this circumnavigation of the Americas. You know, up in, in the Arctic, you know, you've got the whales, and narwhals, and walruses, and polar bears, of course. Um, in Alaska, we were there for the whole of the great salmon runs, so bears and whales, you know, stellar sea lions and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you get down in South Georgia. I was in uh, St. Andrew's Bay in South Georgia in the middle of three quarters of a million penguins. I mean, it was just mind-blowing, you know. Within six feet of, you know, bull elephant seals fighting over the right, um, you know, to create a harem. And, and then in Antarctica, of course, you know, penguins of all different types and whales. And, and so, you know, I certainly miss, you know, diving in coral, uh, seeing the fish and the warm water. But uh, wildlife on this trip was equally, fasc equally fascinating, just in a, in a different way, mm -hmm. slightly colder way. I will say that uh, I didn't really, haven't gotten a chance to miss exploring underwater because uh, I was certified for scuba diving when Drake and I finished our um, our crewing on a boat and then he immediately whisked me off to the Arctic. So <laughs> I've only been scuba diving for a week and uh, and now we're we're in waters that are pretty cold. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I Thank you guys all for talking with me. This has been really amazing. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsealphaexpeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>